This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Bing. Only Bing brings together the best of search with Facebook and Twitter. Try it today at bing.com. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 14, titled, By Their Words You Shall Know Them, wherein we build ourselves a working hypothesis with lexical clue. Hey, Mike. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Fantastic. And yourself? Good. You know, I, uh, I often call my dog Buddy. So you should consider that the very mm-hmm. highest compliment. Mm-hmm. Or the opposite, but thank you. <laughs> Trust me, it's a compliment. All right, thank you. And so taken. What do we got today? Well, speaking of compliments, I want to read a couple of iTunes comments and thank our listeners for the many generous reviews, especially to those of you who have played along with our silly game of incorporating a rhetorical device into your comments. For example... Jared Martinson wrote recently, Lexicon Valley is a joy to my ears and to my mind a treat. So he took the structure of the first part, a joy to my ears, and inverted it, and to my mind a treat. That's called chiasmus. Isn't that a high school in Brooklyn? Well, at least it doesn't sound like a disease this week. (laughs) (laughs) No, although maybe molten lava at the center of the earth. I've always really liked that device because it lends a kind of poetic quality to the sentence. And in fact, Shakespeare used it in Othello, who dotes yet doubts, suspects yet strong loves. It has a a lyrical quality. I really like it. I agree. So thanks, Jared, for the kind words. Also, Mario D'Antonio wrote, the hosts of this show have renewed my faith in humanity. Wow. (laughs) Jot that down, Mike, because uh, that'll be good for the performance review. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that doesn't necessarily contain a rhetorical device unless you read it as sarcasm, but let's assume for the moment that it's not sarcastic, in which case I'm happy for him. It sounds like his outlook has really improved and we somehow 
played a part in that. But really, Bob, what could you or I possibly have said or done to restore anybody's faith in humanity? I can't even possibly imagine. I've never been accused of that before. (laughs) Well, thanks, Mario, and uh, please keep the comments coming. Last week, Bob, we talked about one way that computers and digitized texts are sort of expanding our ability to study language change. This week, I want to talk about another. Tell me some things that you know about The Wizard of Oz. Written by L. Frank Baum. Mm Mm-hmm made into a uh, movie in the 30s that continues to captivate and in all probability scare the living crap out of uh, children to this day. An interesting encounter with opiates for young Dorothy and her, her pals along the yellow brick road. Syncs up nicely to The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. It does indeed. Uh, you got your bad witch who gets crushed by the house. You got the good witch of the north that Billy Burke played, Glinda. And then, of course, you have the Wicked Witch of the West, played by Margaret Hamilton, later to appear in Maxwell House commercials in a character called Cora. I mean, I could go on for hours. Sounds like you know quite a bit about The Wizard of Oz. The movie was based on a book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, by L. Frank Baum. It was published in 1900. Baum had intended it to be a single, one-off story, but it was such a huge success that the publisher wanted him to write a sequel, which he did again and again and again for the next nearly 20 years. The Marvelous Land of Oz, The Patchwork Girl of Oz, The Lost Princess of Oz. All told, there were 14 books, and in 1919, he died. Now, the books had continued to be popular and profitable, for all those years, and the publisher was reluctant to let the series die along with Baum, so he commissioned a children's book author to continue the series. Her name was Ruth Plumley Thompson. She went on to write a book a year for the next two decades. They would always come out right before Christmas, and they were sort of tied to the holiday. The first one was published in 1921 and was called The Royal Book of Oz. The title page of this book says by L. Frank Baum, enlarged and edited by Ruth Plumley Thompson. Oh, it's the James Patterson treatment, right? He gets his name in big type. The actual author gets it in small type. I'm surprised that you know that about James Patterson. If I remember correctly, you had said on a previous podcast that you're flushed with a sense of superiority every time you see his novels on somebody's shelf. It's true. When that happens, I have a little condescension orgasm. But I have this kind of perverse fascination with his career. I kind of knew him back from when he was in the uh, advertising agency business. And uh, I've watched this phenomenon gather with gathering horror for myself. Yeah, and essentially you're right. Did the publisher list Baum as the author to ease the transition for the reader? Or was Baum, in fact, the author? So there has been some question among Ozophiles about the authorship of this 15th book in the series, which is either the last by Baum or the first by Thompson. Assuming that one of them wrote the majority of the book, how would you go about determining who it was? Well, I think if the reader is at all observant, they pick up style and you know even writerly tics that recur in one author's text versus another, 
God knows if anyone were familiar with the thousands of columns I've written, it would take them no time at all to pick up an unbylined one by me and, and say, oh, yeah, that's Bob Garfield. Look, there's all those really long convoluted sentences followed by very short declarative sentences, often with a swear word. They, yeah, that's, that's Bob. In fact, it's more difficult than you think. And in this case, it's probably doubly difficult because Ruth Thompson and Frank Baum were not only writing about the same material, but in a very similar style. And in fact, Ruth Thompson may have been unconsciously or even consciously emulating the style of Frank Baum to give the reader some kind of continuity. But okay, let's talk about sentence length. That, it turns out, is a very unreliable way to pinpoint an author. Most of us average out at around the same place when you measure things like that. In fact, people have tried to measure average word length, and that doesn't work either. There's even a kind of universal mathematical law that says word length is inversely related to its frequency in the language. In other words, the words we use the most are the shortest. That's true for every known language, I think, on Earth, except maybe for made-up languages, and it makes sense. Languages evolve to be economical. Of the 100 most common words in English, according to one study, only one is seven letters long, because. Only one is six letters long, person. All the rest are shorter than that. So again, we tend to average out at around the same place, and it's not a very good metric to identify an author. Okay, so you're saying, no, Bob, you're wrong. Even if you're fairly familiar with the author, it takes more than a cursory examination to nail his identity. Yeah, it does. But if you look at that list of the 100 most common words in English, most of them are prepositions, articles, pronouns, conjunctions, auxiliary verbs, so-called function words, or what a guy named Dan Rockmore calls lexical glue. Dan Rockmore is the chair of the mathematics department at Dartmouth, and he says that there's something else about these very common function words that makes them significantly variable from one person to another. If you've ever had anything line edited by a very careful editor, what they're attending to are your predilections to choose which versus that, you know, nevertheless versus but. I mean, those sorts of choices, which if you look at some official style manual, like Strunk and White or something, there are ways in which you are supposed to decide this. But when you're writing, many of us, uh, presumably certainly me, are, are not actually referring back to something like those style manuals, I'm making those choices based on the way things often just sound to me. And in an almost sort of ironic way, it's the words that we tend to think about the least. Yes. Or if you like, be the least conscious of. And the theory is among mathematicians and statisticians that every individual has their own uniquely identifiable way in which they use those words in their frequency and in their distribution. That's the working hypothesis. So he, he's saying that looking at the frequency and, and, and say, juxtaposition of these, these otherwise inconspicuous words is a kind of biometric exercise. I don't know, like a genome, right? Where the little bits of genetic material organized in different ways determine 
the totality of the organism. Yeah, exactly. And that's the sort of working hypothesis that you can identify an author versus another author by looking at that sort of data. So a mathematician named Jose Benango took the 14 Oz books that we know Baum wrote and a bunch of the Oz books that we know Thompson wrote and scanned them into a computer. And he identified the 50 most frequently used of these so-called function words, the, and, to, from, etc. Incidentally, there are a few types of these words that he deemed ineligible for a variety of reasons. For example, he didn't include personal pronouns like he or she because the frequency of those words depends often on the sex of the characters in the book, right? Not some unconscious predilection of the author, which is really what we're trying to measure here. What is the unconscious predilection of Baum as opposed to the unconscious predilection of Thompson? And is there a difference? You know, suddenly, this is all sounding very familiar to me. Do you remember 10 or 15 years ago when Primary Colors, the novel by Anonymous, was such a big sensation? And it was a parlor game, you know, in in Washington and among literary circles in New York to figure out who really this Anonymous was. Mm -hmm. They used, it seems to me, software just like this to figure out that, aha, it must be Joe Klein the political writer for Time, and lo and behold, it turned out to be Joe Klein. Yeah, I think there was some sort of statistical analysis that's similar to what Bonongo did with Oz. And I want to try to describe a little bit of the math here. It's kind of complicated, but I don't want to give the impression that there's some mysterious black box and you just put a bunch of data in and out pops the answer. So what Bonongo did was he treated each of these 50 words as its own separate dimension, so to speak, in space. In other words, instead of the three-dimensional space that we're all familiar with, with an x-axis and a y-axis and a z-axis, Bonongo created a 50-dimensional space with a the-axis, a from-axis, a with-axis, etc., all 50 of these words. Here's Daniel Rockmore again. So all the works of Baum can then be viewed as a whole bunch of points in some abstract space, and all the works of Thompson can be viewed as points in the same abstract space. And if this is actually a way to distinguish them, then you would see a cluster of points that are only the Baum works and a cluster of points that are only the um, Thompson works. Baum is the Milky Way over here, and Thompson is some other galaxy light years away. Yes, exactly. I got to say, Mike, I'm impressed that you seem to be following what he says because I'm having a lot of trouble getting my head around the idea of 50 dimensions. I just don't get it. Has he been sniffing lexical glue? (laughs) Okay, so you can represent 50-dimensional space mathematically, but not graphically. You're right. It's very hard to picture that. So what Bonongo did was he collapsed the 50 dimensions down into two through a mathematical procedure that results in the loss of some information, but it's, according to him, a, quote, good approximation. And what you see is remarkable. Best case scenario, really, what Dan Rockmore was suggesting, a distinct cluster of points that represents Baum's works and a distinct cluster representing Thompson's, two separate galaxies. So now we know that with regard to these 50 most frequently used function words in those works— These two writers 
Baum and Thompson are very different. All right. Now that we're back in two dimensions uh, where I operate, <laughs> I can sort of see clusters of word incidents. Uh, to solve this mystery of the disputed authorship, you just go to the text itself, find out what that cluster looks like, and whichever overlaps, there's your writer. Exactly. That's pretty much what you do. But before Bonongo did that, he did something else just to sort of check his work, in a sense. It turns out that Baum published a whole bunch of other non-Oz-related books that weren't originally put into the mix here. So Bonongo took five of those. The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus was one. The Sea Fairies was another. Entirely different characters, entirely different subject matter. And he did this same graphical procedure, and as Bonongo says, with no exception, all five graphed into the bomb cluster of points. Yeah, I'm not proud of this myself, but if you look at my various books, whether it's general nonfiction or a business book or a novel that I've got coming out, there is no question in my mind but what the clusters will entirely overlap. I just cannot run away from my stylistic fingerprints. Yeah, you know, it turns out that it's kind of difficult to do that. I mean, you can really consciously write in a different style, of course, but when you're not thinking about it, you don't. So finally, Bonongo did this same thing with the disputed 15th book, and it graphed unambiguously into Thompson's cluster, providing very good evidence that she was, in fact, the author and leading Bonongo to conclude, quote, literature indeed is not without a dimension that is open to statistical scrutiny. All right, Mike, it makes sense. But, you know, litigating the uh, Frank Baum-Thompson question, uh, I would say, is a limited application. What else (laughs) does this technology offer? That's a fair question. Okay, we'll get there. But let's take a short break and mention our sponsor, Bing.com. When you're searching for something like directions or the weather, search works pretty well. When you want to know what your L.A. friends think is the best place to get brunch in West Hollywood, which is something that I wanted to know several weeks ago, then search doesn't really work very well. But when search is tied to your social networks, you can tap the wisdom of the people you know, people you're friends with on Facebook or who you follow on Twitter and Foursquare. Search tied to social networking is not only about getting an answer, it's about getting feedback, practical feedback about movies, restaurants, hotels, travel destinations. Bing is like whispering in the ear of all of your friends at the same time. And if your friends are anything like mine, one of them will have an answer. Bing.com. So this idea that we might be able to identify quantitatively somehow an author's style was actually given a name in the late 1800s, believe it or not, by a Polish philosopher named Vincenti Ludoslavski, who was way ahead of his time. He envisioned what he called a future science of stylometry. That was the word he coined, essentially measuring an author's style. And he imagined that it could be used to, quote, decide questions of authenticity and chronology of literary works. Now, this was the late 1800s. It was well before the computer age, and he couldn't imagine what would be possible 100-plus years later. But Bonongo in the 2000s was not the first to use computers in this way. In fact, 
the breakthrough work of this kind was back in the mid-1960s using computer punch cards and entering in the text by hand. It was extremely laborious, but important in that case because it showed for the first time unequivocally that this lexical glue, these function words, really do vary in a measurable way from one person to another, even between people whose writing style is otherwise very similar. Do you know, Bob, who wrote the Federalist Papers? Uh, James Madison? He's one of the people, yeah. The Federalist Papers were a series of essays published in newspapers originally in 1787 and 1788, all under the byline Publius. They were written to advocate on behalf of this new federal constitution, and they were urging the citizens of New York to ratify it. They were then compiled and published as a book. There were about 85 of them in total, and it was revealed that Publius was, in fact, three people. John Jay, who would later become the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, wrote a handful of them. James Madison wrote between 10 and 20 of them. And the third, of course, was James Patterson. Yes, James <laughs> Patterson, although he wrote them under the name Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. Poor schnook. <laughs> so Alexander Hamilton wrote 50-some-odd of them. And then there were about a dozen that were disputed. Madison said that he wrote them, and Hamilton had compiled a list in which he claimed that they were his. So in the 1960s, a couple of guys, Fred Mosteller and David Wallace, looked at the frequency of 30 of these function words through all of the Federalist Papers. And there was a good amount of data because the Federalist Papers were essays that were much longer than the typical newspaper column of today. The shortest one, I think, was almost a thousand words, and the longer ones were well over 3,000 words. So you're talking about quite a bit of text here. All right. I get the drill at this stage. You analyze works that you know were written by Madison and works you know were written by Hamilton. You find out how they cluster out, and then you take the disputed work and see what overlaps, right? Yeah, exactly. And it turns out that the dozen disputed essays were, in fact, all written by Madison. And when you do these sorts of analyses, some interesting patterns will sometimes jump out from the data. In this case, for example, Hamilton used the single word upon about 10 times as often as Madison. I'm not really sure what that means, but it's interesting. In the case of Frank Baum and Ruth Thompson, Thompson used direction words like up, down, on, over, and several others about twice as much as Baum. And Baum used negating words like not, no, and but, far more often than Thompson. So when you analyze the incidence of these function words for a particular author, sometimes you do find these very distinct little, as you call them, personal ticks. By the way, Fred Mosteller, one of the guys who did this pioneering analysis of the Federalist Papers, was one of the premier statisticians of the 20th century. There's a book of essays by other people discussing his contributions to the field. You and I are both avid baseball fans, Bob, so you'll appreciate this. Mosteller was, I believe, the first person to publish in an academic journal a paper about baseball. This was back in the early 1950s. He was a big Red Sox fan, and the Red Sox lost the World Series in 46. Mosteller set out to prove mathematically 
that a seven-game series was inadequate in determining which was the better team. And I think that's sort of accepted wisdom now. So he was sort of the proto-sabermetrician. Yeah. And he was also, as I mentioned, a pioneer with regard to analyzing these function words, this lexical glue. Now, with the digitization of text, people like Dan Rockmore at Dartmouth are starting to take this premise even further. You mean the premise that there are very telling patterns in the usage of these itsy-bitsy little words that nobody ever really thinks about. Exactly. And what Rockmore and several of his colleagues wondered was, what would we see if we analyzed the frequency of these function words, not just between two authors, but among a whole host of authors over time? And of course, many thousands of books are now available in full in the public domain. And so Rockmore collected almost 8,000 works in English by more than 500 authors from about 1550 to 1950 and analyzed the frequency throughout these works of about 300 of these function words. So how does this trend? I mean, should I go long on from and short up? <laughs> well, any given author will generate, you know, a set of numbers, right, when you do this analysis, and you might think that there's no rhyme or reason to them in general. But what you see is pretty amazing. Authors have a similar set of values for these 300 or so function words as other authors who are close to them in time. So that you get clusters of authors suggesting a sort of evolution of literary style, in a sense. All right, Mike. And I'm like, duh. Isn't it manifest that style is not only a function of an individual writer's predilections, but of the ebb and flow of linguistic change in general? It's certainly something that we think of colloquially, right? We talk about a style of a time. But it's another thing entirely to sort of buttress that with quantitative analysis. Let me hit you with something that I think is not obvious, at least it wasn't obvious to me, and it's something that also answers your question about what sorts of insights we can get from these kinds of analyses. So this observation I would describe as sort of showing that the past is becoming more quickly irrelevant. I'll read you exactly what Rockmore and his colleagues wrote. Whereas authors of the 18th and 19th centuries continue to be influenced by previous centuries, authors of the late 20th century are strongly influenced by authors from their own decade. The so-called anxiety of influence, whereby authors are understood in terms of their response to canonical precursors, is becoming an anxiety of impotence, in which the past exerts a diminishing stylistic influence on the present. Whoa. So the half-life of stylistic convention is diminishing over time, right? Is that what they're saying? I think that's one way you could think of it. And do I understand right that he's saying it's because these kids in their crazy mop tops just don't have any respect for their elders? I mean, I think it's open to interpretation as to why. There's a kind of diminishing of the cultural attention span, and it may be that there's simply so much out there in terms of published material that it's harder to be influenced by our predecessors for very long. As we go further and further into the future, we're influenced by the things that are closer to us in time. Hmm. Maybe it also suggests that the influence of the canon in general is on the wane, 
that we as a culture are so obsessed with our contemporaneous selves, we just don't spend a whole lot of time with the acknowledged classics. Does that trouble you? Yeah, yeah, that does actually bother me, Mike. And I have gigantic gaping holes in my familiarity with the canon. I mean, gaping holes, but I probably spend more time than most reading the classics versus, let's say, new fiction. I read both, but if the data suggest we're uh, caught up in our 21st century selves, count me out. I like that Shakespeare guy. I heard he was a good writer. Can I just say, darn good writer. Which, by the way, Mike, on the subject of William Shakespeare, holy moly, I don't know how we didn't get to this earlier. There is like the greatest literary mystery of the last 400 years. The question as to the provenance of Shakespeare's work. You know, the idea that Christopher Marlowe was really the author of of some or all of his work. Can't they just run this through the lexical glue factory to find out <laughs> whether whether Shakespeare was the real deal? It's a little bit of a different case, right? Because if you believe that Marlowe wrote all of Shakespeare's plays, then you don't have a body of work that you know Shakespeare himself wrote. And so there's nothing to sort of compare the disputed works against. Oh, it doesn't work if there's like no author named Shakespeare. It doesn't work if Shakespeare doesn't exist. But that didn't stop somebody from doing these sorts of analyses on Shakespeare's work and comparing it to Marlowe. And the conclusion was that Shakespeare and Marlowe are sort of closer to each other than they are to any of their other contemporaries, and that there appears to be certainly a very strong influence. And it may even be the case that a play or two was written by Marlowe, but they do appear to be different people. Hmm. All right, so maybe my earlier analogy of uh, biometrics, of a fingerprint, of of a DNA sample, uh, not quite accurate. Well, actually, you know, Jose Bonango, the guy who did this analysis on The Wizard of Oz, he addresses this idea of the fingerprint analogy, and he agrees with some other stylometrists who have said reputable practitioners would hesitate to claim that stylometry is as precise as fingerprinting. Bonongo thinks that a better way to think of it is as a signature or a voice, something that he says permits a degree of change while retaining a writer's individuality. Ah, so it's not DNA. It's uh, handwriting analysis. Well, it is now, but I think the hope of people like Bonongo and others is that there are other kinds of data that we can analyze, that there are as yet unrecognized patterns in the data that we're analyzing now, and that there are whole other things to measure that we haven't even thought of yet, that taken together with these function words will turn these signatures into fingerprints. I guess all we have to do is uh, follow the yellow brick road. (laughs) (laughs) Follow the, follow the, follow the, follow the, follow the yellow brick road. We're off to see the wizard, the wonder. Well, as a matter of fact, we are off. Both you and I are going to be traveling next week, so we're going to take the week off. In the meantime, please write us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. 
I want to thank Dan Rockmore. He's the chair of the mathematics department at Dartmouth. And Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mike, are we done here? We're done, Bobby. Later, Gator. You're